I've been really, really excited today to jump into this new teaching series we're going to be working our way through. For the next eight weeks, we're going to be looking at a series called Shepherds and Kings. It's going to be a study on the life of David. And if you're not familiar with David, he was probably the most prolific king in the Old Testament. And his story was central not only to all the other kings in the Old Testament, but also set up the story of Jesus as Jesus came into the New Testament. And so this morning we're going to start out this teaching series on the life of David by talking about what it means to be a man after God's own heart. Because David was known in the Bible, the most common description of him was that he was a man after God's own heart. That's what he was. And so uh, what does it mean for us to be a man or to be a woman after God's own heart? Uh, Chip and Dan Heath wrote a book a few years ago called Switch. And the book Switch, the whole premise of it was how do you change things when change is hard? So how do you change things about yourself? How do you change things with other people when change is hard? And the basic premise of the book, they said, was that basically we make decisions in our lives out of two primary systems, our logical minds and our emotional hearts. And so to give us an understanding of, you know, how we make those decisions, the book gives us a picture, and the picture is of a gigantic elephant with a tiny human rider sitting on top of the elephant. And so the idea is the tiny human rider represents our logical minds, and the gigantic elephant represents the seed of our emotions, our heart, or, 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 or the seed of our emotions. And so uh, the elephant has a six-ton advantage over the human rider. So even though the logical mind, the human rider, probably has the best view of what direction to go, probably has the best understanding of the path it needs to take, at the end of the day, if the elephant or the rider, if they disagree about which direction to go, guess who wins? The elephant, right? A hundred percent of the time, the elephant is going to win. And so that's the basic premise of the book, is that if you want to change people, if you want to change anything in, in your life, you have to start with your heart. You have to start with the seed of our emotions because at the end of the day, that's really what we make decisions of our lives out of. This is why at 12 o'clock at night, you eat a bunch of junk food even though you're on a diet, right? Your your logical mind knows in that moment, this decision does not compute with my health goals, right? But your elephant, your emotional heart wants you to eat your feelings, right? That's just how it goes. By the way, if you do find yourself eating your feelings at 1230 at night, I highly recommend peanut butter. I just find peanut butter helps to stuff the feelings down. It's just a, it's a great thing. Uh, but that's, that's how it works. Uh, to, I was thinking about a time in my own life where I really saw how the, the elephant really takes control. I was thinking five years ago, this month, literally five years ago, uh, my family and I were coming home from spending an evening with some friends. And when we got home, uh, we found our beloved pet beagle. His name is Snuggy. He was Alan, my oldest son's dog. Uh, we found him. He was a very old dog at that point, and He was having seizures. It was just horrible to watch. I mean, like traumatic. He was just having seizure after seizure. And so um, this is my boy's dog that they'd grown up with. My two oldest boys were 10 and 11 at the time. And so this was just traumatic. And so I remember I said, okay, something is clearly wrong. So I gathered Snuggy up and I decided I'm going to take him to the 24-hour veterinary clinic that's right here on Plainfield. And so my two older boys were like, we have to go with you. You have to let us go with, uh, with you, Dad. So I was like, okay. So we jump in the van. They're in the back uh, with Snuggy. And, you know, he's having seizures. It's horrible. We go to the clinic and over a series of like a couple hours, they run a bunch of tests and they basically discover the worst. That uh, they, they come to us and they basically said, man, there's something really wrong with his brain. Probably most likely a brain tumor. 
And because he's so old, there's really, it's too dangerous to try to do any kind of a surgery and that really, really wouldn't be worth it. And so we go through this agonizing process of coming to the decision to put Snuggie down, to put him to sleep. And uh, if you've ever been through anything like this, uh, you, you know how this, this is just awful. It's like it just it destroys you emotionally, especially to have your kids there and watch them go through it. Um, I mean, our pets are like a member of our own family. And so I'm just destroyed by this. And so I remember we have this moment where Snuggie is like on the table and my boys and I gather around him and, and we just, I remember we prayed and we just thank God for Snuggie. We thank God for giving us him and his life and what a joy he was for our family. And then we say goodbye to him and they come and they take the dog away. Right? And so like I'm crying, they're crying. It's just awful. And then a few minutes later uh, after this, um, this moment happens where the nurse comes back in the room and she says, uh, sir, what would you like us to do with his body? Now, if you are ever in this circumstance, I just want you to know the correct answer to that question is, well, of course, I don't want to take him home. You guys take his body. I do not. My kids are here with me. There's absolutely no way I want his body. You guys take care of that. That's the correct answer. Have you ever find yourself in that situation? But because of the condition I was in, because of the, my boys crying and the emotion there, I, I responded completely out of the elephant, and I just went, I'll take him. Just bring him back into me. So they bring the dog in wrapped in a blanket, and I take my dog. My boys start crying even harder. Right now, they're, it's just like explosive crying. So I, I take the dog out, I take my dog, I put him in the back seat of the car. My boys are like laying on his body the whole ride home. Oh, Snuggy! Driving all the way home. And at like two in the morning, I am in my backyard with a shovel, like shoveling. And my boys are standing there with flashlights. I'm going, why did I say yet? Why did I do this to myself? This is torture. It's awful. Well, the reason I did, it to my, did that to myself is because I didn't make that decision out of my logical mind. I made it out of the elephant, right? I made it out of my heart, the seat of my emotions. And at the end of the day, that's really how we make most decisions in our lives. And so if that's the case, if, if that's really how it is that we make decisions out of our hearts, uh, this is the question I want to ask you this morning. How often do you think about the condition of your own heart if David was called a man after God's own heart, and the heart is basically the seat of our emotions and where we make our decisions from, how often do you think about the condition of your own heart? How often do you reflect on that? Augustine, one of the early church fathers, said this, Men go abroad to wonder at the heights of mountains, at the huge waves of the sea, at the long courses of the rivers, at the vast compass of the ocean, at the circular motions of the stars, and they pass by themselves without wondering. In other words, the same wonder and the same awe that we see in all of creation and that we are amazed at is the same wonder that's inside of us, that, that we were made with. And yet most of the time we don't reflect, we don't look inward, and we don't reflect on the condition of our own hearts. But David was a man after God's own heart. So to understand the heart of David, believe it or not, the place you have to start is with King Saul. You actually can't start with David if you want to understand why David was a man after God's own heart. So Saul was the very first king of Israel. He was anointed to be the king of Israel by Samuel. Samuel was uh, the king maker of Israel. He anointed both Saul and David later. And so the moment that Saul lost the opportunity to be the king of Israel was a moment that exposed his own heart and what was actually in his heart. It happened like this. 
Saul has the army of Israel and they are lined up because there is an imminent battle about to happen with the Philistines. There is an attack coming. The Philistines are lining up their army and they're preparing for battle. And so before uh, Israel, before they could jump into battle, before they could go into a battle, they had, Saul had basically made an agreement with God. And the agreement was, I will not charge into battle until Samuel has come. And Samuel, as the man of God, was to offer a sacrifice before every one of their battles as a way of honoring God before they went into the battle. And Saul knew this. That had been commanded by God. He had agreed to that. And so now they're standing there at the battle and they're waiting for Samuel. But the problem is Samuel is late. And the Philistines are lining up, and the battle is coming, and now it's like, he's late. Where is he? Where is he? And so what happens is Saul's men begin to freak out a little bit, and they begin to start to put some pressure to Saul. They're saying, come on, man. Like, we can't wait forever. We got to get down there to the battle lines, or else we're going to find ourselves getting attacked, and we're not ready. And so Saul responds to the pressure that the men are putting on him, and he goes ahead, and he just offers the sacrifice himself so they can just get to the battle line. And this, that's where we'll pick up the story. First Samuel 13, verse 10 says, Just as Saul was finishing with the burnt offering, Samuel arrived. Saul went out to meet and welcome him, but Samuel said, What is this you have done? Saul replied, I saw my men scattering from me, and you didn't arrive when you said you would, and the Philistines are at Michmash ready for battle. So I said, the Philistines are ready to march against us at Gilgal, and I haven't even asked for the Lord's help. Sounds reasonable, right? So I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering myself before you came. How foolish, Samuel exclaimed. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. Had you kept it, the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom must end, for the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. The Lord has already appointed him to be the leader of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. So what's happening here in this moment is Saul's actions are right in appearance. It seems logical. Like you look at it, you go, this, this makes sense what he did. They appear to be right, but the problem was he did this with the wrong heart. In this moment, he cared more about what human beings thought about him. He cared more about what his men thought about him in this moment than he did about what God thought about him and what God had actually commanded him to do. And so God is now rejecting Saul, and God is searching for a man after his own heart. He's searching. Samuel is now going to be moving and working and looking for a man who's after his own heart. It happened like this. God leads Samuel to a guy by the name of Jesse. And Jesse has many sons. And uh, as Samuel is being led to, to Jesse, God says, you're going to find the next king of Israel, the man after my own heart in Jesse's family. And so David is, at this time is a shepherd boy. He's the youngest of Jesse's sons. He's the lowest in terms of his position in the family. And he's a player of the harp, yet he's this fierce defender of his flock. And so when Samuel arrives, David is out with the sheep and the flock. Now imagine this moment. If, if you were Jesse and you hear that Samuel is, is going to come to your house and he's going to sit down and have a meal with your family, this would be like the president coming to your house, okay? This would be like somebody of great importance, somebody with a lot of power is coming to your house. And so you would think this is important, right, to get your whole family together. And yet Jesse doesn't. 1 Samuel 16, verse 10. In the same way, all seven of Jesse's sons were presented to Samuel. 
Samuel. But Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen any of these. Then Samuel asked, Are these all the sons you have? There is still the youngest, Jesse replied, but he's out in the fields watching the sheep and goats. Send for him at once, Samuel said. We will not sit down to eat until he arrives. So Jesse sent for him. He was dark and handsome with beautiful eyes. And the Lord said, This is the one. Anoint him. So as David stood there among his brothers, Samuel took the flask of olive oil he had brought and anointed David with the oil. And the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David from that day on. So imagine in this moment, like the president comes to your house and you don't even bother to bring your youngest son in for the meeting. Does that give you a picture of how David was viewed by his own father? Does that give you a picture of how David was viewed in his family with his brothers? But then what happens is when he's brought in, God, you know, man looks on outward appearance. The basic message of, of this moment is man judges by outward appearance. Man looks at outward appearance, but God looks at what's in our hearts, and he chooses his leaders accordingly. And so all of us sit there and go, wow, that's a great story. It's a great underdog story, isn't it? Man looks on outward appearances. Saul was concerned with outward appearances, but God looks on the heart. And David had a heart after God's own heart. It's a great story. Here's the problem with the story. And if you've grown up in church, you've heard this story before, or maybe you haven't considered this. Uh, If you go ahead and you read the rest of David's story as he becomes the king and he continues on, and we're going to do that over the next eight weeks. We're going to look at David's story. What you're going to realize is David was called a man after God's own heart, but David was also the most prolific sinner in the entire Old Testament. Saul lost the kingdom because he offered a sacrifice inappropriately. But David, if you were to read, I'll just read you a list of his sins, just some of the sins that are recorded uh, in, the, in the Old Testament. They include adultery, murder, and not like murder in battle, but like premeditated murder, uh, political cover-ups where like he lied to the people about what was really going on, Failure as a father, we'll see that later in the story specifically of Absalom. Failure as a husband. I mean, David's sins outweigh Saul's sins in both quantity and quality. I mean, this guy did some bad stuff. And yet, David, he's the man after God's own heart. He's the one whose kingdom will be established forever and who the line of, is the line that Jesus would eventually come from. But Saul, sorry Saul, you're out. How is that? How could that possibly be? How could David be a man after God's own heart when he did these kinds of things? And how could God honor that? It doesn't line up with what we think we know about God, does it? And so here's the secret. Here's what you have to understand if you want to understand the heart of God and David. It all has to do with how David responded when he was confronted with his sin. It all centers around, it all hinges upon the way David responded whenever he got confronted for his sin. Every king in the Old Testament, if you read through all the stories of the kings, they all had a prophet. Some of them had multiple prophets. A prophet was a critic in the margins, a thorn in their side. And the prophet was basically the person who would speak the hard truth that nobody really wanted to hear. You can usually tell the prophets in the story because they're the ones that get killed. That's how you can spot them. 
And the prophets, all throughout the Old Testament, the prophets, basically all of them had two messages. They only said two things in just different formats. But this is, these were the two messages of the prophets. Uh, one was to tell the enslaved that they could be freed. And the other one was to tell those who think they are free that they are actually enslaved. That's what the job of a prophet always is. The first one of those messages results in joy and thanksgiving and great, you know, great things. The second one usually gets the prophet killed. When you speak that there are people who think they're free, but they're actually enslaved, and they need to be set free, and they need to repent, and they need to come to grips with their own mess, that's usually the message that gets them killed. David had a prophet. Does anybody know the name of the primary prophet that confronted David? His name was Nathan. And, and there are multiple times where Nathan confronts David. There are two primary times that he confronts David after some of his worst sins. The first one is right after David commits adultery with Bathsheba and then has her husband murdered. Uh, Nathan, the prophet, comes to David and he confronts him on his behavior. Now, David has already proved that he's willing to murder someone to cover up his sin. So when Nathan comes to confront David, he's taking his own life in his hands. But when Nathan confronts David on his sin, when he confronts him on what he's done, what happens is David recognizes what happens and he's wrecked by it. He's wrecked by what he's done. He says, oh, what I've done is, is complete sin. It's complete wrong. And he humbles himself and he confesses and he repents and he listens to Nathan. The second time Nathan confronts him, David decides he's going to build this fancy dwelling place for the Lord. He's going to be the one that builds the temple. And so there in, um, in uh, Chronicles, I think it's 1 Chronicles 28, verse 3, there's this incredible passage uh, where Nathan confronts David and his exact words to David, speaking on God's behalf, he says, you are not to build a house for my name, God says, because you are a warrior and have shed blood. He comes to the king and says that. You can't build this house because you're a warrior and shed blood. If that were me, I'd be like, yeah, I have shed blood. You want me to shed yours? How would you like to see what I can do to you? Right? But in this moment, as David is confronted with that, he's wrecked by it. And he says, oh, that's right. My hands are unclean. And he repents and he listens and he gives up his dream, realizes it was his dream, not God's dream, and he gives it up in order for his son would be the one that would come and would, would be the one to build the temple. Over and over again, you see David, whenever he's confronted, his response is where you see the heart of God revealed. So if you're looking for something to, to jot down, the idea is that confrontation plus response is what equals what's in our hearts. Confrontation, whenever David is confronted with his own sin, you watch his response and that's when you see why David was called a man after God's own heart. Not all the prophets in David's life were men. In 2 Samuel chapter 21, we find the story of a different kind of prophet, a prophetess named Rizpah. It happened like this. Uh, David has decided that he's going to make a peace treaty with the Gibeonites using the currency of human lives. And so there's this concubine named Rizpah, and so David takes her children and five other people, and he basically hands them over to the Gibeonites so the Gibeonites can massacre them in exchange for this peace treaty. And so that's what happens. He, they strip this woman's children from her. They're massacred on this hill, and their bodies are left on the hill to rot and, and decompose. And for the animals to get them and for the elements to take them, they're not given a proper burial. 
And so what happens is Rizpah, with the reckless love that only a mother who's grieving could express, she goes to the hill where the bodies are and she lays out sackcloth, which was a Jewish symbol of mourning. She lays out sackcloth on this rock beside the bodies and she just sets up camp. And she wails and she grieves and days go by and then weeks go by. And then literally while the rains, during the rainy season in Israel, she stays out there for months chasing away the wild animals and just sitting there setting up camp next to the bodies and protecting them. And word of this reaches David. And when, and when the news of this reaches David, he hears about what this mother does. It cuts him to the bone. It, it cuts through to his heart and it wrecks him. And he says, what have I done? What have I allowed to happen? And this beautiful act of compassion, David goes and he gathers up all the bones of her loved ones and he gives them a proper burial and this extension, this way of trying to make right what he'd done. David was moved by human suffering and it caused him to look at himself. It caused him to repent. It caused him to listen when he was confronted by the prophets. That's the heart of God and David. If I were to give you kind of a visual illustration of the difference between Saul and David, this was David all throughout the Old Testament. No matter how many times he sinned, man, the stage wasn't wet when I was doing this last service. Uh, No matter how many times David sins, no matter how many times he falls, no matter how many times you drop him away from God, he always just managed to bounce straight back to God. No matter how awful his sins were, no matter how bad it was what he did, he just always bounces right back to God every single time. Saul, every time you drop Saul, he would bounce farther away from God. His response whenever he was confronted was a bounce away from God. But David, no matter what happened, he always bounced straight back to God. And that's why David was called a man after God's own heart. Here's what that tells us about God. What it tells us about God is that God has the power, amazingly, to turn our greatest failures our greatest mistakes into our greatest moments of victory. God has that power. It all depends on your heart. It all depends on how you respond when the prophets confront you. David, every time he was confronted, he bounced straight back to God. He he was moved by human suffering. He responded with confession, with repentance, and with listening to what God was trying to say to him. So as we think about this story and this idea of David being a man after God's own heart, as we try to turn this teaching toward ourselves for a moment and say, what does this mean about us? The question I want us all to wrestle with this morning in our own lives is, what do you do when the prophets confront you? What do you do in your life when the prophets confront you? Because here's the thing, David had prophets that confronted him, but you have prophets too. I have prophets. We all have people in our lives. We all have moments in our lives where we are confronted with our own sin, with our own brokenness, where it's put right in front of our faces. The truest test of what's in your heart, if you want to know what kind of heart do I have, do I have a heart after God's own heart? If you want to know, the truest test is, what do you do when the prophets confront you? Sometimes the prophets that confront us are our own children. When they come to us and they say, Dad, you say to do this, you say you value these things, and yet you act and you behave this way. What do you do when those moments happen? 
for me, even this, just this past week, when my uh, oldest son, who I'm constantly asking, how are you doing? How was your day? And he won't tell me. Late at night, like 11 o'clock at night, he decides he's finally going to open up and tell me what's, what's really been going on in his life and what, what he's really been carrying. In that moment, late at night, I'm ready to go to bed, and he starts to unload this. What do I do as a father? Do I harden my heart? Do I go into lecture mode? Well, you know, if you just do this, if you just do that, or do I say, you know, it's, it's late. Why don't we just get into this tomorrow? Or in that moment, do I let it wreck me? And do I say, oh, I had no idea you were going through that. Thank you. Thank you for telling me that. Let me walk with you in this. Let me be with you in this. What do you do when the prophets confront you? Sometimes the prophets that confront us are a life crisis, a cancer diagnosis. For, th- for me, three years ago, a prophet came to me in the form of a phone call that told me I had cancer. And here's the thing. If you were to ask me, do you wish that had never happened? Do you wish? I, am, I would absolutely say, no, I'm so grateful. I'm so thankful for that phone call. I wouldn't trade that diagnosis for anything. And the reason is because God was coming to me in the form of a prophet in my life with that cancer. And he was saying, listen, you think you're free, Brian, but there are some things that you are actually enslaved to, and God wants to set you free. You're enslaved to this pursuit, chasing like ministry numbers and what other people think about you and validating yourself in front of all these people and you're not free. And God said, I want to set you free from that. I want you to to have a, a real pursuit after me. And you know what? He has, he is doing that. And he's, he's changing my heart. He's continuing to change my heart. And I'm so grateful for that phone call. I'm so grateful for that prophet in my life. And I'm so grateful. I said, yes, God, you can change me. You can change my heart. And I wouldn't trade it for anything. Sometimes the prophets come to us in the form of the news, right? We live in a day and age where the media bombards us all the time. And for me, you know, it's what do I do when the black community is grieving yet another unarmed black man that's been shot? Or when there's another school shooting that's happened? What do I do in that moment? Do I harden my heart? Do I assume I already know all the answers? And there's really nothing new for me to learn here. I already know why this keeps happening. Or in that moment, do I join in the, gr- the people who are grieving? Do I, do I let it wreck me? Do I say, oh God, what do I need to do? How do I need to use my privilege on behalf of others? How do I need to see this differently? In what ways do I need to repent? God, would you bring healing? What do you do when the prophets confront you? Because that is the truest test of your heart. And what God is after is not your behavior. He's not after your money. He's not after your performance. He is after your heart. That's what he's after. What do you do when you're confronted? Do you let it wreck you? And do you say, God, there's no way I can keep living this life independently from you. I confess, I repent, I need you in my life. David wrote uh, many of the Psalms that we find in the Bible. Some of you maybe didn't know that. There's one Psalm that David wrote, Psalm 51. Uh, He wrote right after Nathan the prophet confronted him on his sin with Bathsheba. After his adultery and his murder and cover-up, Nathan confronts him and David writes Psalm Psalm 51. And Psalm 51 verse 17, there's this brilliant observation David makes about God. He says, the sacrifice you desire, God, is a broken spirit. You will not reject 
a broken and repentant what? Heart. You will not reject a broken and repentant heart, oh God. In other words, our greatest failures, our greatest messes, it doesn't matter. It literally doesn't matter how bad you've been, how much you've messed up, how many times you've gone down the same path and made the same mistake. God does not reject a broken and repentant heart because that's what he's interested in. That's what he judges us accordingly, according to, is how do we respond when we're confronted? This morning, I'm guessing there's some of you in this room, there's a, there's a prophet somewhere in your life and you're being confronted. Maybe even right now. And you know it. You know it. God is coming to you in some form and he's saying, look at this. Look at this thing in your life. And you have a chance. You have a chance to listen. You have a chance to repent. You have a chance to confess. And David says, God will not reject a broken and repentant heart. That's how good he is. And he'll turn your greatest failures, your greatest mistakes, into some of your greatest victories. The greatest things that you'll tell stories about and give testimony to God about and find joy in will be your greatest liabilities and weaknesses and brokenness when it's been confessed and repented and turned over to God. By the way, that's what baptism celebrates. Baptism is this outward symbol of a change that's happening on the inside of our hearts. That's what it is. It's, the word is, a, the baptism is a sacrament. The word means mystery. It's this mysterious symbol that we interact with. And when we identify ourselves with it, we literally are saying, we're going public with our faith in Jesus. And we're saying, there's this change that's happening on the inside of my heart. And I'm going to start living out of this change in my heart. And when we, when we allow God to change our hearts, he changes our lives out of that heart change. The meaning of the symbol that Romans 6 talks about, we are buried with Christ in baptism. And just like he was buried in death we are and he was raised to a new life, we are raised to a new life with him. So when we go down in the water, just like Jesus died and was buried, when we go under the water, we're saying, I'm dying to my old life. I'm dying to my own ways uh, of, of handling things. I'm, di I'm dying to a hardened heart, to assuming that I already know all the answers here. And there's nothing new for me really to learn. And just, I'm just going to double down on my anger and I'm going to solve things in my own way. I'm dying to that. And just like Jesus was raised from the grave to a new life, when we come up out of the water, we're saying, I'm living a new life. God has changed my heart on the inside and I'm living this out with this symbol on the outside. And God's giving me a new life. That's the symbol of baptism. That's what it is. And that's why we celebrate it is because that's what God values. That's what he ma matters to him. And when you live out of that new heart, you live a new life. So here's what we're gonna do. Um, we're going to move into a time of baptism. And so uh, there's a, a few people who have made the decision to get baptized this morning. Um, and so in a moment, we're going to stand up and we're going to sing this song, Who You Say I Am. It's this incredible song about God's heart for us, God's love for us, and who we are in Him, that we are a child of God. And here's the thing. Maybe you came here this morning and you weren't planning to get baptized. Uh, maybe that wasn't part of the plan. But as you've come here this morning, maybe you're being confronted. Even, maybe even this service this morning is, is the prophet confronting you and saying, look at this. You can't do this on your own. You can't, this isn't about you proving how powerful you are. This is about your desperate need for a Savior, and that's what Jesus is. What are you going to do with that? 
you're ready to get baptized, maybe you're saying, well, I, I didn't bring a change of clothes. I don't have a towel. Here's the deal. We have towels right up here in front. We have a bunch of t-shirts over here. Um, and uh, t-shirts are, we give those to anybody who gets baptized. Don't get baptized just to get a free t-shirt. Okay, I always feel like I need to say that as like a disclaimer. Don't do that. Get baptized this morning. Come forward and do it because there, you need a change of your heart and you need to go public with your faith in Jesus that God is changing you from the inside out. But I'm telling you, you'll never be the same. And so uh, as we stand, go ahead and stand up. I'd love to offer a prayer. And for those who are ready to get baptized, would you just come and join me and some of our other staff are gonna be here and just join us over here on this side of the stage. We're just gonna kind of gather over here while we sing and then uh, we'll go for it and start baptizing. So Lord Jesus, we just thank you for who you are in this place. And we just recognize that you are mighty to save. Like we were just singing about a minute ago, you are merciful and mighty. You're powerful enough to save us. You're powerful enough to crush us, whichever one you wanna do, but you're merciful. And when we come to you with a broken and repentant heart, when we come to you with a heart after your own heart, when we bounce back to you, you don't reject us. Let David's words this morning, Lord, penetrate our own hearts. You don't reject, you don't respond negatively to a broken and contrite heart. And so this morning, God, we come to you. We just confess you as Lord. We just allow you to have access to the deepest places of our hearts. And we just say, God, would you do something new in us? Would you do a work in us that can only be described and can only be uh, given glory to you for? We know you can do it, God. Would you turn our greatest failures into our greatest victories by the power of the resurrection, by the power of what you've done for us? In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. All right, let's sing. And uh, if you're ready to get baptized, you just come on up. and.